Politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, friends, Romans, and taxpayers to the one and only Conservative Review podcast here on this fine Friday end of the week. And boy, am I ready for the end of the week, even though this was a little bit of a truncated week for us. We definitely covered a lot of ground. Um, But I invite Romans because sometimes I feel like we are like the Roman Empire just before the fall. Of all the issues we have been honored to discuss with you the thousands of articles uh, we've published at Conservative Review, Blaze Media, the last number of years, um, from healthcare to immigration to foreign policy to regulatory issues. To me, the issue that keeps me up at night is what is going on with crime. Um, Even in my relatively short lifetime, I've been able to see a full picture When I was a kid, things were really bad. We thought this was a new normal with crime everywhere, homelessness, drugs. And then with that Giuliani era really catalyzed in New York City, but replicated elsewhere, we saw the bubble pop. And really one of the most miraculous and probably one of the only positive social trends in this country, the last 25 or not the last, but roughly 25 years, let's say from 93 to 2015, we'll put it, crime went down year after year after year, and an entire generation forgot about this issue. Well, quietly, quietly, and depending on the location, some places it has been for three to five years, some places it has been really as much as 12 years, the pendulum has swung the other way. They are not arresting as many people. They are going back on the more aggressive police tactics. They are concocting every way from Sunday to get people off convictions. Certainly drug crimes, but all crimes. They're abolishing bail. They are reducing sentencing. They're increasing parole. And then when they violate their parole, they don't reincarcerate them. From every step of the criminal justice system, from the policing and arrests, all the way through the evidentiary standards and trial to the end to post-conviction, obviously pre-trial, incarceration, everything is going out the window. What are we seeing? We're seeing, I'm working on an article in San Diego with crime in general going up there, but gang violence in particular is going up. We're seeing the homelessness suddenly creep in after we thought we got rid of that in the 80s. Um, it's everywhere, particularly bad in the West Coast, but in the East Coast as well. Many of, many of you have seen the viral video now of this woman who was violently shoved against a train by this really violent dude in a New York subway. The New York subway violence is back. This is not an aberration. There's tons of these stories. We have our article out yesterday, a whole series we've been doing, and really thanks to the good work of the, of the New York Post on all of these violent criminals. And when I say violent, I don't even mean drug traffickers. I mean uh, child molesters, gang murderers that, are, that serve very short sentences, are let out pretrial on bail, are let out without bail. What in the world is going on here? Now, before I introduce our guest here, I want to submit one other piece of evidence here. There's one other aspect of this 
criminal justice reform Orwellian named uh, movement. And that is, well, if I could not only get the politicians to buy onto this, but I get the prosecutors to now be wolves in sheepskin. I get public defender types to now run as prosecutors and actually win. Well, I, I've got it made because, you know, then then I control the entire system. Over the last number of years, and, and it's really growing every election cycle, George Soros has a political action committee where he is funding all of these what what are what he calls progressive prosecutors to knock off existing district district attorneys, sheriffs that you know, often it's, it's, it's nonpartisan positions. Sometimes they are, sometimes they're Republican, sometimes they're Democrat, but they all understand the dangers to our communities and our streets and they want to do their job and they are being challenged. Now you understand that house races, Senate races, they're becoming more and more expensive, a million dollars, $2, 2 million for house raises, but a million dollars for a local DA race is a lot of money. So if Soros dumps in $800,000 in a given uh, district, given county, that's a big deal. And as you well know, they're not going to run and say, hey, we're here to abolish prison. Um, they have many clever ways of marketing their candidates because they know that most Americans don't believe in what these uh, radical academics uh, believe that are pushing this abolish prison movement. So this is a big danger. Many of you are asking me, Okay, Daniel, you explain the problem. What could I do? What could I do? I want to help. I'm here to tell you that in many ways, DA and sheriff's races are more impactful to your life than anything federal, including president. And what I mean by that is those of you who are veterans to this show know that because of the court system, because of the bureaucracies, because of the broken nature of the Republican Party, Tweedledee, Tweedledum, not much changes. You don't see a... You don't see much change with regard to healthcare, with regard to immigration, with regard to foreign policy. But when it comes to crime, let me tell you, the difference between a traditional DA and a Soros DA is a huge difference. And you are going to feel it. We are already feeling it. One of these cases is in Monroe County, uh, New York. This is the Rochester area where Sandra Dorley, a two-term DA who believes in public safety, believes in, in scrupulously taking bad guys off the streets, is being challenged by a public defender type who actually worked in her office with $800,000 worth of ads. You guys want to do something. So first, I just want to put up SandraDorley.com right over here. You could check out her website. And uh, you guys want to do something. I'm telling you, this is more impactful than anything. And with no further ado, it is my pleasure to welcome for the first time to the show, Sandra Dorley, the DA of Monroe County. Thanks for joining us. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me on your show, Dan. Well, sorry for the filibuster there. And I know you were waiting That's on the line <laughs> for, for a while. You, you didn't serve in a legislature, so you're not used to filibusters. Um $800,000, that's, that's a lot of money up against you. Could you just frame where this is coming from and why? Sure. But let me, let me just tell you a little bit. Monroe County, we're upstate New York. We have a population of roughly 750,000. You know, we've been, you know, pretty stable politically. Um, this is the largest political expenditure that Monroe County has ever seen, over $800,000. And 
you know, it's coming from this this pack that is solely funded by George Soros. And it's mostly negative ads against me. And then it does run, you know, some positive, if you will, about my opponent. Now, could you describe for us what is a progressive prosecutor? So your opponent and and by the way, just um, and I really short circuited you there. Uh, you know, Sandra has served in Monroe County DA office since 1992. So really as a full picture of the evolution of different trends, then was elected as the DA in 2011, two terms now is running for a third term. Um, Miss Mitchell, your opponent actually worked in your office under you. Um, Was she recruited? You know, this is what happened. She she had some history in Atlanta, but I'm not really sure exactly what that was. It's kind of, um, it's sketchy at, at best. So she came up here and she interviewed, she wanted to move back to Monroe County. She was hoping that she could, you know, wave into the New York state bar, but whatever, whatever happened, she was required to take the bar. She did, she passed it. She came back here in 2013 and she asked to join the office. And you know what? Um, we have a very diverse community. I thought, you know, she would bring diversity. She would bring different ideas. Mm-hmm. I thought, you know, she would be a great hire. Um, she worked her way up through misdemeanors and didn't really do, you know, anything spectacular handling those cases. And then when it was time to promote her to felonies, she was promoted to uh, one of the entry level felony uh, bureaus and she was handling stolen car cases. Nothing spectacular. Again, you know, I looked at her trial record. She has done three trials in New York State, three trials under New York law. Two of them were stolen car cases and one of them was a felony DWI. And needless to say, you know, never a top count conviction. This is someone who wasn't setting the world on fire here in Monroe County. She wanted to be a judge. That was her only um, goal in life. She wanted to be a Rochester City Court judge. If you look at Monroe County, you know, the, the, the county is basically very conservative. The city of Rochester it, mm. you know, is very democratic. So she was hoping that she could have the opportunity to run for a city court judge spot. We had an opening in November. She resigned from my office after serving. It was almost five years and she was going to run for Rochester city court. Then, you know, we have we had a change in primary laws here in New York state. So primaries were a lot earlier. And the political season started basically in January and February with the passing of petitions. And the next thing I knew, she had dropped out of the city court race and she is now running against me for district attorney. But it's interesting, you know, I, um, and, we, and we can talk in, in more detail. Mm-hmm. She has she's really bought into the the Soros, the progressive, um, if you will, you know, model of, of a district attorney. If you if you look at the Nation article that she participated in, her goal is to model Monroe County after Larry Krasner in Philadelphia. Oh, my. Yes. I mean, it's 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 very scary. If 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 anything, if there was ever anything that would rally law enforcement against me and and, and look at I've got law enforcement, they are you know behind me 100 percent. But what happened in Philadelphia and the U.S. attorney's position there that, you know, now they are going to be taking over prosecution. We can't have this happen here in Monroe County. And that's the path that she is moving forward on. Here, here's what I see happening. I'm wondering what your perspective on the inside is. Me as an outsider and as just a citizen watching the crime trends, I've watched this for many years. 
what I'm seeing is analogous to someone driving, skidding on a road, and they're they're about to head into the right um, guardrail. And the person says, you know what, man, we really need a sharp right turn into the right guardrail um, as if we're not heading there enough. Really, you know what? When the time calls for a correction in the other direction, they want to double down on that. What I'm seeing here is. So their their notion is built on this myth of over incarceration. Um, now, they started off saying was low level, nonviolent first, so low level, nonviolent first time. But then what happened was it was such a good talking point. I mean, even me, I don't believe right. it kept going and going and going. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So even someone like me, I mean, I'm a terrible lock them up guy. So even me. Yeah. Daniel, do you believe in taking a nonviolent first time low level offender and locking up for 70 years? Well, no, I, I don't really do it. But then what happened was. Well, that accounted for zero percent of the population. So then now they're starting to get a little bit more honest. Well, yeah, I guess maybe we'll want to let out the violent ones, too. So the way it stands now is this less than um, only 15 percent of those serving time in state prison is for drugs. And believe me, many of those are very violent people. Um, and then and they don't serve too long. Um, according to information I have, Jim Path, um, uh, Fordham University law professor wrote, if we freed everyone in prison tomorrow, except the 25 percent who are there for murder, manslaughter or sexual assault, and that doesn't include robbery um, or aggravated assault, we'd still have an incarceration rate higher than almost every European country because we have a heck of a lot of crime. And here's what really gets me, Sandra. If you look at the uniform crime statistics, I didn't crunch the numbers for the brand new ones for 2018, but it's the same every year, roughly for 2017. If you look at the uncleared crimes just for the big four, what everyone should agree you want to lock up and, and deter, um, it, you know, so we all strive. What do we hope for to get as many murderers, rapists, robbers as we can? Let's say we actually did that. So just in one year, and this reoccurs every year, there were 6,013 murder cases uncleared, 79,310 rape cases uncleared, 206,091 robbery cases uncleared, and 394,000 aggravated assault cases uncleared. Now, granted, a lot of them are some of them are probably doubles and the same person. But if we just focused on those four, we would incarcerate a heck of a lot more people isn't it true that there's a lot of bad guys on the streets we don't catch exactly there's a a lot of as i said there's a lot of evil walking around and you know as you say you know new new york we have just opened up you know this whole criminal um justice reform mm. and it's going to change the way that we do business going forward and i know you know based on the proposals that have passed and you know how they passed they passed in the governor's budget bill no debate they were they were shoved in the budget bill you know when the legislators wanted to leave it was two three o'clock in the morning you know they finally passed the budget bill and all of this criminal reform was stuck in the middle of it. I have had legislators come to me and say, now, wh now what does this reform mean? You know, they, they, they simply didn't understand what they were voting. There was no debate on the floor. You know, we as stakeholders, the District Attorneys Association, we were, you know, our doors were shut in Albany. We were not allowed in to at least nope. give our opinion as to what would happen. I know the same is true for the sheriff's organizations, the state police chiefs associations. We are the stakeholders. We are the people that could have given, you know, if, if you want reform, reform is great. But you know what? You got to do it smart. You got to do it 
in terms of protecting public safety and victims. And this was the opposite of that. But also the other word I use is balance. So a perfect system, a perfect system would lock up and deter and punish all the really problematic people that are going to harm other people and somehow have some magical solution that people that aren't going to hurt people anymore or never really did um, to find some sort of diversion program. But what I'm finding is there's no balance. So in, in the world I live in, for every one person they want to show that's over incarcerated, I see 500 who are under incarcerated, never incarcerated. But I but- never see any legislation targeted at closing those loopholes that allow the bad guys to get off. But but it's all towards, you know, this this reducing the prison population. Is that really what's driving this, that we got to reduce the prison population at all costs? Well, you know what? I think it is here in New York. I mean, our governor has, you know, touted the fact that he's closed more state prisons in his tenure than anyone else. And and we have the Division of Criminal Justice Services who analyzes all of this criminal data that they have. And before this criminal justice reform was phased in, they were touting that New York is the sixth safest state overall in the country. And in terms of large states, we have the lower incar- the lowest incarceration rate. So when you have this, you know, we, we incarcerate less people, we are a safe state, then why are you coming in with all of these reforms <laughs> that are going to create, you know, a topsy-turvy world? It, may, it makes no sense. It's speaking out of both sides of your mouth. And that's the thing. It's almost like they did double duty. The last 10 years, they quietly reduced the prison population. But I even speak to conservatives who are like, yeah, you know, there's a lot of people in prison. I said, have you not been following things since 2005? It peaked a long time ago. Um, the federal prison population really shrunk. But every state, some, I mean, in my home state of Maryland, it shrunk, not the rate in absolute numbers by 30% as the state's population has grown about 10% over the last decade. Here's what's disturbing me. What I saw is um, a little bit before the uniform crime reporting came out from the FBI, Bureau of Justice Statistics released their annual National Crime Victimization Survey, the NCVS, and it was very disturbing. Everyone's talking about, yeah, still in most places, crime is down. But there's something funny going on because people don't feel that anymore. And it came out here that among U.S. residents age 12 or older, the number of violent crime victims rose from 2.7 million in 2015 to 3.3 million in 2018, an increase of 604,000. Um, and, and that's a big deal because from 94 to 2015, Every successive year, the numbers went down and down and down. So that's a big deal. If you now have a hockey stick kind of model there where you're it's swinging back up, it's swinging right. back up. And, and they, they found this. And I want to get your comment on it. Why this is not being picked up in the general uniform crime reporting, but you're seeing it from victims. Um, according to the NCVS um, press release by BJS, the overall rise was driven by increase in the number of victims of rape or sexual assault, aggravated assault, and simple assault. Um, Overall, the number of violent incidents increased from 5.2 million in 2017. So not not going back to 2015, 2017, to 6 million in 2018. But over that same year, the uniform crime reporting showed, now the number slid back down again. 
is this because we are now not even arresting many people we previously did so it's not that the crimes aren't being committed. It's that they're not being documented in the uniform crime reporting because the law enforcement agencies aren't making their arrests. It's 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 a little bit of both. Absolutely. You know what I um, anecdotally, you know, I, I know that sometimes law enforcement is told to stand down. Um, and I, I think that happens all over the country. They they're, they're told stand down. Don't make these arrests. So you've got. Law enforcement perhaps doing that. You've got unsolved crimes, more individuals who are violent, who are um, a threat to public safety. They're out there. They're doing more. And then you've got people who should be in prison or in jail out there joining the population as well. So I think it's a combination of all three. Um, and you know what? Victim safety, I think, is the most important thing. People want to be safe in their homes. You know, for goodness sakes, you know, you want to be able to, you know, close your door at night and and do whatever with your family and not worry about someone, you know, you know, breaking in and having, you know, a home invasion or, you know, taking taking property out of your car that's in the driveway. People want to be safe. And that's and that's what we all need to strive for. Because I always want to know, look, maybe I'm getting a skewed view. Obviously, I live right outside of Baltimore and that's its own, uh, you know, very special uh, case. Yeah. And um, there's a lot of problems here. But but one of the things I noted, I mean, look, anyone who lives here and, and it spans from if you're right, left, anyone will tell you that crime has really, really gone up the last few years here and certainly in Baltimore City, but really the entire metro area. But if you if you would try to quantify it, you're not really going to see it that much in statistics, because what is well known and there's, you know, this is all open source is that the cops here for sure are standing back, whereas before the pressure was, I want the arrests up. I want the convictions up. Um, you, you lived through this in the 90s. Now it seems to be don't incarcerate. But then on the other hand, well, they don't want the crime numbers to go up. So they have their right. cake and eat it, too, by saying, hey, see no evil, hear no evil. We just won't arrest them and the numbers won't go up, but the incarceration won't go up either. Right. And and then you want to you can add something else to that fact. Think about, you know, here in, in um, Monroe County, specifically in the city of Rochester, um, the city council is trying to enact something called a, a, a police accountability board where the police will not be able to police their own through their, you know, their public um, in, through, through their own internal um, means. It will be an independent board that will review every single action and, and, and step taken by police. If it's in terms of use of excessive force, you know, whether this arrest was warranted, you're going to have people who aren't experts people who perhaps have an ax to grind against police and law enforcement. This is the this is the push here. So if it goes if this referendum goes through and this accountability board comes in, you know, I, I feel bad for police officers because they are not going to be able to do their jobs the way they have to. In that split second when they have to make a decision, are they going to be saying, oh, my goodness, what's going to happen to me, my career, my family? If someone on this police accountability board thinks that I missed I took the wrong step. One of the things and I think that ties back into policing I want to get to is is drugs. Um, the problem is this is too subtle because, you know, when you have a problem that was zero before and it suddenly comes into play, then everyone notices it. Drugs we've had for 50 years, we've had for many years. So, you know, ho-hum. But as you know, from your career, there is a huge difference between what we had 
it's hard to put a date 2013, 2014, 2015. And after that, um, I cannot help but notice. Now, you, you look at what factors change. So number one, there's the rise of sanctuary cities where they harbor a lot of the criminal alien networks that are contracting for the cartels. You see unmistakably the rise of transnational gangs, particularly in the East Coast, um, MS-13, and increasingly they use drug trafficking to service their revenue. Wherever you see MS-13, Maryland, New Jersey, Long Island, you see drug trafficking. So that's certainly part of it. You, we've had... Um, a lot of legal immigration from Central America since 2014 is the benchmark here. But I can't help but notice if you look in the political legal culture in terms of drug prosecutions, the, even if you would believe that we went too far in the 90s, which I don't necessarily agree with. But let's say you see that point. The pendulum has swung so far that it's almost right. like there's a stigma against going after them. Do you believe that that is a big part of why there's a greater proliferation of drugs? You know, you know ab absolutely. You know, here, here in New York, we repeal the Rockefeller drug laws. So people, um, you know, when they get arrested, they probably go to, you know, a drug court or um, they get they get probation. You know, here, you know, I, I want to take these drug dealers and these drug dealers need to go to prison. I mean, yeah. you know, if ands or buts about it. We have a horrible opioid problem, but we also see um, opioids and we see a lot of cocaine. People are overdosing. People are dying. The end of September, we had 636 overdoses. In so, your county? In, in, in our county alone. Wow. Yes. So, you know, what, what I've been doing is looking at a way to take these drug dealers, especially with these fatalities where they're killing, where they're killing people, because we've had over... I think we're up to 90 in the, in the 90s so far of fatalities, drug-related fatalities this year in 2019. Um, you know, if, if I can make a case, I'm prosecuting drug dealers with a homicide charge and I'm trying to get them to stay prison because you know what? That's the only way that they're going to they're, they're gonna get inside of a jail cell. That's the only time that they're going to see it. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm pushing the envelope, but interestingly enough, they've all come in and pled guilty. I haven't had to, we haven't had to try one yet in Monroe County. <laughs> These drug dealers who have caused death by selling bad dope, which is, you know, basically 94% fentanyl. That's what we, we saw in 2018. They're coming in and they're pleading guilty. And, and we're at least getting them into state prison that way. Because that, that really scares me. And I, gosh, I wish I prepared the quote before me, but Reagan in a radio address in 1984 really laid this out very well, President Reagan, how... It was known back then, and it's it, boy, is it true now that those involved in the drug trafficking. So even if you're not such a hawk on drugs, they're the same people doing the armed robbery and the murders, and they're involved in the gangs, often transnational. Like, weapons, and they all have weapons. And they all have weapons. So the idea was Reagan, you know, with the Armed Career Criminal Act, some of the um, laws that he passed in '80. Hey. The feds went after two things, drugs and firearms, because they were the honeypot to everything. And guess what happened? We took them off the streets and boom. I mean, it's like, you know, it, it, the, the trend, a violent crime um, and homicide went down 60, 65 percent over the period of 22 years. And what is it about that that people don't understand? Now, people always said that 
oh, the war on drugs never worked. But something's interesting. I'm always told by law enforcement, you never seek to solve a problem. You try to mitigate a problem. You can't. I mean, it would be great to solve a problem. But sometimes you don't appreciate what losing a war is until you stop doing what you're doing. Well, I think we would all love to go back to the drug crisis of 2005 than the one we're in now. Right. I mean, it's it's horrible. You know, I worked with my my uh, local sheriff in 2017 and we began to form the Monroe County Heroin Task Force. And you know what? Our our goals were simply education and prevention and prosecution of drug dealers and prosecuting drug dealers for homicides and and all of that engaging in long term investigations, a.k.a. wiretaps and making sure that we get, you know, those dangerous individuals off the streets. Now, with criminal justice reform, those that, you know, are arrested with just, you know, selling kilos. If they have a gun, then we're, then we're good. But if they don't, if, if we if we catch them and they're just, you know, in possession of, you know, the, the dope, um, they're going to get released on their own recognizance. That's, so that's what the new law says. All the policymakers, state, county and federal, both parties, the opioid crisis. Oh, my gosh. And, and obviously the drugs and the homelessness, too, which it, it clearly is tying into that. I don't understand how no one connects the dots. Well, yeah, we didn't take it all off the streets and we always had a problem. But if you downright green light, almost like you treat the prosecutors like the criminals, like how dare you, you know, go after that. Well, then you're going to have a lot of it. And if you have a lot of it, you're going to have more people dying of it. <laughs> so, exactly. So so, so here we, we've got Project Exile that we have here in Monroe County. I believe it was started in Richmond, Virginia in 1998. It's a collaboration between you know, the U.S. Attorney's Office and our and, you know, the district attorneys where, you know, if someone is arrested for, you know, a gun and drug charge, um, they may be referred to to federal um, court and prosecution by the U.S. Attorney's Office because the stakes and the sentences there are a lot higher. So we're getting, you know, those who are, are you know, touting illegal uh, weapons and drugs off the streets. So just this past week, and I'm not sure if my opponent had anything to do with it, but I suspect that she did. There was a big news conference where um, former inmates, you know, asked that project ordered, you know, demanded that I, you know, stop my participation in Project Exile because it wasn't fair that they were spending 20 years in federal prison for having drugs and guns. That was the message. This isn't fair. What about the message that, you know, we're all sending law abiding citizens, you know what, follow the law, don't sell drugs and stop with the illegal firearms. I mean, th this is the lunacy that we're seeing now. And it was picked up by the media. The media is calling me for a comment. What do you think about disbanding Project Exile? I'm like, it works. You plus guns, illegal guns equals federal prison. That's that's the way we operate. That's the way we keep our streets safe. And, and again, these are the guys, MS-13, Latin Kings. But, yeah. um, they're, they're doing the other stuff, too. Here's what I find to be the most astounding observation of this entire discussion, that shockingly, nobody in Washington is even bringing this up. There is a tremendous debate in this country now over mass shootings, gun right. violence. Now, I'm sure, I don't want to put words in her mouth, but I'm sure um, your op opponent would tell me, so in the state of Maryland, I cannot carry any firearm of any caliber of any sort outside my home. 
Okay, that that's in the state of Maryland. Very rarely, if you have a cash business, sometimes you can get, but I cannot wow. get. And, wow. and 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 yeah. So in other words, what you have in the city in New York City, we pretty much have statewide. So your opponent, I'm I'm assuming, would say that's a good thing. And yeah, Daniel, you shouldn't be okay. Guns are horrible. I, absolutely. Okay. She's saying that. So guns are guns are awful. Okay. But when it comes to the most violent gangbangers with homicide convictions in New York and Chicago, we see this every day. And then they're let out on parole, often after serving way too small of a sentence for what they did. And they're caught violating their parole with felony possession. They are not reincarcerated because, oh, man, then I'm going to lose another statistic. And I, I don't know. I just got him out of jail. I don't want to get him back in. How could these people look you in the eye and say, I'm concerned about gun violence. Therefore, I'm going to have across the board, even people that are squeaking. But those gangbangers caught with felony possession are not let's, incarcerated. Right. Let, 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 let's give them a pass because they're misunderstood. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, it, it, it's frustrating. I mean, I believe in the Second Second Amendment. I believe, you know, that everyone has a right to bear arms. I, I'm an opponent, opponent of, you know, guns. Um, yeah. She no, no one should carry. And then you're right. The guns, the illegal guns in the possession of our felons, you know, let's just give them a pass. Doesn't this really speak to, you know, the guns and drugs are are very interesting because they're both items. But doesn't this speak to an issue that a war on items doesn't work? And I agree with that. Generally speaking, uh, the, the drugs is an end to itself. The gun is an end to itself. A lot of conservatives believe, you know, you, you, gun control doesn't work, doesn't take them out the streets. Baltimore City is a perfect example. But what does work is you go after the bad people doing it. The criminal control. Um, if you take off the bad actors, um, according to BJS, usually 78, 80 percent of homicide offenders have priors. Some of these mass shooters are very confounding. They're tough nuts to crack because they're very odd. They come out of nowhere. But almost all of the 16, 17,000 homicides a year are from people that are cycling in and out of Baltimore, Chicago. They're, they're known to law enforcement. So isn't it true that it's not the first time people were talking about we're not keeping the repeat offenders locked up? No, that's that that's true. You know, here in New York, we have something called the mandatory violent persistent felony offender where, you know, your third violent offense, you're going to get a sentence that includes, you know, life at the end of it. The court has just upheld persistent um a felony offender where again, you could have, you know, for your third non-violent felony offense, you could have a sentence that would have life at the end. You know, I'm waiting for New York to say that that's not fair and for for, for that to be to be um, taken away from us. Could, I'm waiting for that. Could you explain? I mean, they, they, well, I'm sorry. I'm, I was say, they, they, you know, I, I know in the legislation that they're looking at this year, they're already looking at, you know, limitations on parole. So individuals who have parole violations, they won't actually be, you know, taken into to custody. They're looking at something called 55 and out. So if you're an inmate and you have turned 55 years old and you've served 15 years of your sentence, then you will be, you know, eligible for release to parole. And think about that. You know, those are individuals who gets a 15 year sentence in New York. Those are your mandatory violent persistence. Those are your, 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 
your, you know, Rob ones. Those are your murderers. Those are your manslaughters. I mean, this was a bit. Not even Sandra. Not even. So I, my, my latest article from yesterday, it's the top one on our website. Okay. Who is this? Shaquille Chandler, 32. This guy was picked up. Um, he is a Crips gangbanger picked up on murder, um, 2006, a, a gang related murder in Queens. The guy served eight years, eight years, eight years. Yep. He was out. He was out on parole. And like all of them, you know, now he obviously, um, was caught with felony possession and he was let out without any bond, zero bond, um, beat their record. Usually it's a couple thousand dollars. So th- this is what I've been told forever is Daniel Jesus believes in second chances, second chances. But by definition, when we're talking about parole, they're talking chances. I mean, they, they, they've probably been given second, third, fourth, fifth chances <laughs> at some point in their criminal career. I mean, that's, that's for those individuals who are the most violent, you know, they've been through the system, you know, they've gotten, you know, first time out of the block, they've gotten their ACD, they've gotten their like disorderly conduct, then they've gotten their misdemeanor. They've just graduated up. They've gotten their chances. Okay. Especially the violent ones. I, I, we're running out of time and I don't want to take too much of your time. I want to get to the specific New York laws, but be, before I forget, I think people that aren't, aren't lawyers, aren't in this business, prosecutions, understanding the court system. Could you explain to people why is it that there are so many horrendous, violent people we see that are picked up for really bad things, including murder. And almost always they're able to plead down sometimes very significantly as a prosecutor. Could you explain why you guys are forced to take that and why it's so hard to nail them on the significant charges, which is why you often have to go for the drugs and, and firearms. Right. I mean, several factors, you know, first of all, the numbers, like I said, here in Monroe County, we're a population of 750,000. Every year we handle approximately 5,000 felony cases. Mm. And, you know, that's that's pretty big for you know, Monroe County. We're not, well, you know, we're, we're not some small rural rural county upstate. Um, you know, our, our attorneys have a lot of, of, of work to do. You know, there's also the fact that, you know, sometimes we run into problems with witnesses. We see a lot of witness and victim tampering and intimidation. So, you know, for a homicide, for example, you know, we may go in and, you know, secure an indictment. We're a grand jury state. So we secure an indictment for murder in the second degree. And, you know, comes time that we go to trial, maybe six months later, and we can't find, you know, eyewitness one and eyewitness Mm. two. So sometimes we're, you know, required to plead down to a manslaughter in the first degree, you know, with a 20, 25 year sentence. That's something that we do. Um, I don't I don't like it, but I would rather have I'd rather not not lose a trial. And I'd rather do that plea, mm. plea bargain. And, um, and, and hearing this from you as a state prosecutor, I think now um, my audience could appreciate what I've been banging away at the federal level with this federal legislation and the complaint of long sentences in the federal system. The reason why a federal prosecutor will come up behind someone like you and say, hey, I know that guy in that area is a really big problem. We know he's responsible for a bunch of murders. I'll come and nail him on, on drug firearms or Rico. And then, right. so people come in like, Oh, Rico, uh, firearm, 
I was one of the guys serving 20 years. But it's like, I'll tell you, Sandra, I look at the press releases every day from major, major areas, U.S. attorneys in, in, in Chicago, New York. And I, I cannot find anyone that I look at and I'm like, they're over sentenced. No, if anything, right. it's the other way around it, 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 the drugs. And I mean, the heavy duty fentanyl, they usually get about five years now when you see 25, 30 year sentences. Then I look into it and like, yep, Latin Kings guy, the judge felt he was responsible for a murder. Exactly. Exactly. And, and that that's the most important thing. You know, you've got to have a relationship. Your district attorney, your state district attorney has to have a relationship with the U.S. Attorney's Office in the same jurisdiction. They've got to work together in a partnership. And again, getting back to, let's get back to Larry Krasner in Philadelphia. There is no relationship there. They are, you know, working at odds. And I believe it's U.S. Attorney McSwain is, is mm. having to come in and try all of these cases because, you know, Larry Krasner won't. You know, I just picked up an article that he, he had a press um, conference, you know, maybe a couple of weeks ago, and he is you know, proud of the fact that he's not prosecuting these misdemeanors, he's not prosecuting all of these crimes, and that his prosecution numbers are down. You know, what about the victims of those crimes? That's all I can say. What 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 about the victims? They, they, they don't again, have a is, pack. This is what my opponent wants to bring to Monroe County. I'd like to know if there's a political action committee of one, because, I mean, we there is no money on the other side. You said something that really haunted me. Um, and I want to segue this to our final point on just the New York laws that are set to go into effect um, on January 1st. And you've been speaking out against them that um, you mentioned something that I have not written about a lot. And I really think we need to cover more on this program that one of the reasons why it's so hard to land a conviction, even if you know that this guy committed murder is because of the witnesses and witness intimidation. So I see that one of the facets of this criminal justice, so-called reform that New York passed earlier this year is that defendants get to have access to all the evidence, including the names and contact info of witnesses. Oh yeah. 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 Let, let, let me get on. Let me get on this one. This is, this is my soapbox. So our governor said that 90% of the people arrested for crimes will not be subject to, you know, will be subject to mandatory release. They will not be held pre-trial. Okay. So all of these defendants are going to be out and about waiting for the disposition or the trial in their case. We have, um, you know, in, in New York and in Monroe County, we've got open discovery where we give everything over probably within 30, 45 days, you know, um, it's, it's something that my predecessor DAs have always done. And I follow suit. You know what? I don't want anyone to say that we ever trial by ambush. I want to make sure that the defense has everything that they need. We give it over 30, 45 days now, now. Okay. We are required by law that everything must be turned over within 15 days of arraignment. And that can also be you know, 15 days of arraignment on a on a felony complaint or 15 days of arraignment on on a grand jury indictment. And now the obligation not only not only does it extend to what we have in our file, we have to make sure that all of our law enforcement partners, all of our community partners, such as, you know, our child advocacy centers, our domestic violence consortiums, that everything that they have regarding the case needs to be turned over. Wait, it gets better. You know, our, our, our toxicology lab, our medical examiner's lab, our, our crime lab, everything must be turned over 15 days of arraignment, okay? 
And along with this criminal justice reform comes zero, zero, zero dollars. This is what's getting me. Grand jury minutes. I mentioned that we are a grand jury state. So say we have a horrible felony and we've got witnesses who are afraid for their lives because you know what? It happens in their community and they fear for retaliation. You know, sometimes we'll say, you know what? We're not going to go down on paper. We're going to walk you into grand jury. It's a secret proceeding. We won't have to turn over this testimony until right before the trial. And we can maybe perhaps seek a protective order. Now we are required within 15 days of arraignment to turn over all of that grand jury testimony. Grand jury is no longer going to be a secret proceeding. Our defendants are going to know who is saying what about them. The majority of them are going to be out of custody because even though those who commit violent crimes, it's not, you know, cash, you know, your, your bond, you know, be cash bond. Well, wait, wait a minute, Sandra, you're, you're going too quick. Slow it down here. <laughs> I know. You, you, you're too quick for me. So certainly people else, because uh, wait a minute, wait a minute here. This is yeah, something this, I didn't this, think this, about. This is ugly. This is ugly. You, you're juxtaposing two provisions of this I never thought. You're saying, okay, because I, I viewed them independently, and I never thought of what you're, the implication of what you're saying. Let's just slow this down. What you're saying, is this correct? That in addition to giving the defendants all of the access to the information of witnesses, now, freeze frame, a separate component of this criminal justice reform, which is spreading like wildfire, is abolishing cash bail for, I mean, I mean, you could, so you could have like a gangbanger, really violent guy picked up on, on assault, on, on drugs, and he assaulted this person. You know, you have these knockouts on the subways, that guy's out immediately, and then he has access to it. You put the two together. Oh my gosh. Right. That's, that's why I said this is going to change the way we do business. So in New York, you've got, they've broken it down into two columns, if you will, qualifying offenses where you can still kind of set bail, but now you have to set three forms of bail, one of which must be a secured, and then another must be a partially unsecured bond. So even the violent felonies under qualifying offenses, they're going to get out you know, more readily, I believe. Your non-qualifying offenses, there's a, a presumption of release on your own recognizance. So with these people out of custody, we are giving over all of this material, our grand jury testimony. We are required to give defense attorneys a way to contact our victims. So me as a prosecutor, and you look at, I've been doing this for 28 years. You know, I've had to sit with victims. I've had to, you know, say, you know what, we can protect you. We can relocate you and your family. The, 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 it's going to, it's going to be horrible. It's to get them to cooperate. So what are you going to have? You're going to have more, more cases, you know, not getting resolved, maybe more, you know, more plea bargaining, if you will, and more people out of custody to continue to commit crime. So I yeah, must say these guys are brilliant I really fast, but yeah, these guys are brilliant because they're creating a cascading velocity of leniency because it builds on itself. So the less you prosecute, the more you plead down, um, the more the less they serve, the more they're out both both pretrial and post conviction. Um, the harder it is to land a conviction because then they're around more. So, you know, like if, if someone knows that they're going to be locked up, OK, I'm not worried about them. Oh, no, they're going to they're be out. So I'm not going to participate in this as a witness. Um, oh, my gosh. Any anything yeah. else you want to say about this? Yeah. Um, 
this uh, criminal justice bill that's going to take effect. I mean, I, we could we could really talk about it forever, but you know what? I've been working with my senior staff since you know since April, and you know we're going to try to think of ways that we can you know you know have protective orders, protect our witnesses, to make sure that we can get these violent offenders off the streets. So you know that's my goal. You know, get coming full circle. You know that's why you know I hope. You know, I get reelected because, you know, I've got the experience and I've been working on it and I'm not really confident that my um, opponent will usher in these criminal justice reforms for the benefit of the victims and the community and public safety. Again, folks here, you could check this out. SandraDorley.com. Um, please, you guys are always asking me who to donate to. And, and, and frankly, I don't know. I mean, there aren't too many people at a federal level that that really make much sense these days. And uh, we'll try to have a couple of House Senate candidates on. I have a couple in mind, but this is really where you're going to have your impact on local D.A., local sheriff's races. Um, I want to just bring this full circle to close here. We're almost, we're pretty much out of time. <sighs> Most people listening to this show. I think whether they consider themselves anything from liberal to conservative would find what we're saying to be very common sense. We disagree on life. We disagree in this country on, on cultural issues. We disagree on tax rates. Very sharply divided country. I, I believe strongly, and I know I am more conservative than the average person on most issues, but I believe very strongly on an issue like this, the silent majority overwhelmingly agrees with this. But I'm telling you, Sandra, if I were to take you to Washington today for all of the talk of the sharp divide on those civil war levels there's almost not a single person forget about the democrats and the republican party that know or understand what you're saying and a lot of them are buying into this like yeah we're just uh, locking up too many people yeah yeah but but like i said you know what you want to go home tonight you want to be with your family you want to be safe you know and and that's what that's what we need to to foster in this community safety public safety is so important public safety crosses all partisan lines and there you have it uh sandra dorley you got to donate to her campaign for da um to be reelected as a third term da look if you like what you heard here let me know if you have other candidates that you think should come on this program um this is this is everything we cannot recover from soros prosecutors because everything you heard under this new york law you're gonna have that everywhere and it's only gonna get worse we're out of time thank you sandra for joining us same time same place next week this is your one-stop shop of independent conservative news god bless and have a great week